Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're bringing you a selection of our favourite bits from the year so far that you might have missed. We're taking a short summer break and we'll be back again with new episodes from the 12th of September. In the meantime, I've picked out a few highlights from our earlier episodes that you might have missed. I hope you enjoy listening to them, whether again or for the first time, as much as producer Hannah and I enjoyed making them. New York, 1922. A time of speakeasies, prohibition and squeezed pocketbooks. It's the week after Hanukkah in the Bronx, and Pauline and David Zimmer have just welcomed baby Esther into the world. Money's tight, but young Esther is excelling at school and heads to Hunter College, part of the public New York City University. But instead of studying languages or literature, as her teachers hoped, she switches to biochemistry. Not a suitable subject for a young Jewish girl, and certainly nothing one could make a career from. Science? Schmeins. An academic superstar, Esther graduated cum laude at the age of just 20 and went to work as a research assistant with Alexander Hollander at what later became Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory in New York, where she published her first paper on the genetics of the red bread mould, Neurospora. A couple of years later, in 1942, she won a fellowship to Stanford University in California, working with George Beadle, remember that name, and embarked on her research career. Coming from a poor family who weren't able to provide financial assistance, Esther supplemented her meagre income by working as a teaching assistant and managed to blag free accommodation by washing her landlady's clothes and cleaning the house. She even apparently occasionally resorted to eating the frog's legs left over from dissection classes. 1946 was a big year for Esther Zimmer. Not only did she get her master's degree from Stanford, she also married Joshua Lederberg. And that's when things started to go downhill. At this point, Lederberg, three years her junior, had already secured an assistant professorship at the University of Wisconsin, even though he hadn't actually finished his doctorate. So his new wife quit California to join him there and work on her own PhD, focusing on the genetics of bacteria. It's from this work that she made her most important discovery, lambdaphage, an example of a new type of virus called a bacteriophage, which hides inside the DNA of bacteria, multiplying and bursting out of the bugs in response to a trigger like ultraviolet light. Esther delved into the world of Lambda alongside Joshua and the rest of his team, investigating how genetic material was transferred between bacteria finding a key factor required for bacteria to have sex, the F or fertility factor, and much, much more. Along the way, she developed an important technique known as replica plating, still used in microbiology labs all over the world today, to make a perfect copy of all the bacterial colonies growing on a plate of nutrient jelly. Esther realised that if she pressed a pad covered in velvet cloth onto the plate of bacteria, then pressed it onto a clean plate, the fibres of the fabric would act as tiny needles, picking up just enough bacteria to start an identical colony. It's a simple idea, but nobody had thought of it before, and it revolutionised the field. 
As a delightfully feminine detail, she first tested the idea using the powder puff from her makeup compact. And then she spent a lot of time finding just the right brand of fabric, working out how to wash and prepare it for the best results, even down to which detergent to use. 1958 was the next really big year for the Lederbergs. Joshua won a half share of the Nobel Prize for his work investigating how genetic material was transferred between bacteria and many aspects of how genes are switched on and off. But who got the other half? Well, it certainly wasn't his wife, whose work with lambdaphage and bacteria had been so crucial for his success. No, it went to Edward Tatum and George Beadle, Esther's original supervisor at Stanford. She wasn't even mentioned in the prize citation. The Lederbergs headed back to Stanford, where Joshua had been invited to establish and chair a new department of genetics. Despite being roughly the same age and his intellectual equal, the contrast between their careers couldn't be more striking. Joshua racks up position after position, professorships, department heads, election to the National Academy of Sciences. Yet while her husband's academic star was ascendant, helped by her work, Esther struggled to get a job at Stanford, even going with two other women to the dean to demand that he appoint at least one woman onto the faculty. She eventually landed a position, for which she was overqualified, and was only offered the job because it was unpaid. It may not come as a surprise to learn that the Lederberg's marriage ended in 1966, and Esther promptly set up a group for divorced women at Stanford, which I'll bet was a blast. <laughs> Left to her own devices, Esther took over Stanford's Plasmid Reference Centre, a vital collection of tiny circles of DNA that can be put into bacteria for all sorts of purposes. She even kept on volunteering there after her retirement in 1985, the year she was finally recognised by Stanford with the honour of Professor Emerita. Science wasn't her only passion, and Esther was a big fan of medieval, renaissance and baroque music, establishing the Mid-Peninsula Recorder Orchestra in Menlo Park, which is still puffing away today. It's also how she met her second husband, Matthew Simon, who she married in 1993 when she was 70. Esther died in 2006 at the age of 83. Frustratingly, her obituary in the New York Times manages to mention her ex-husband at least four times, including the fact that he'd been president of Rockefeller University and had just been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George Bush. Even in death, she was overshadowed by the man she had divorced 40 years earlier. L'chaim, Esther. Let's reclaim your story. The 8th of March is a double whammy in the calendar of days to remember. Not only is it International Women's Day... Yes, ladies, we just get the one. But it's also International Mendel Day, the anniversary of the day in 1865 that Gregor Mendel presented the final instalment of his groundbreaking work on inheritance to his local scientific society in what's now Brunei in the Czech Republic. So the Genetic Society decided to use the 8th of March to bring both of these themes together, hosting a day of talks at the Royal Institution in London in collaboration with the Mendelianum, the museum and research centre in Bruno dedicated to Mendel's life and work. This culminated in a public lecture by leading geneticist Mary Claire King. 
Now the American Cancer Society professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, Mary Claire has contributed to many areas of genetic science during a career spanning more than four decades. From her early work showing that human and chimpanzee genes are 99% identical to finding BRCA1, the first breast cancer gene. Since the 80s, she's also been putting her genetic skills to use to solve human rights abuses and war crimes all over the world. I was lucky enough to sit down with her for a fascinating chat about her life and work, starting with the question of what got her interested in science in the first place. I was interested in math before I was interested in biology, way before. I became interested in math because when I was very small, my dad was already home. He was My dad was born in 1890, so he was a full generation older than most dads. And he was already largely bedridden by the time I was five, six years old. So he was home. And that was early in the days of television. And one of the very first things to be shown on television were baseball games. So my dad and I would watch baseball games together. And he would make up story problems for me. So this is a baseball story problem. So this is for the American listener, Ernie Banks is up. He's batting for the Cubs. His batting average is 277. My dad would say, let's suppose he's going to be up three times in this game. How many hits is he going to need to hit out of those three to make his batting average go to 280? And I would, I was six, you know, and I would listen and listen, and I would say, I don't know. And he would say, you're right, you don't know. What more information do you need in order to be able to figure it out? And the answer, of course, is you need to know how many at-bats he's had already. So the idea of working out story problems while watching baseball seemed to me perfectly natural in the way everyone watched baseball. I wasn't fully aware of how most baseball watching was done. It's like Darwin's children are like, where does your daddy do his barnacles? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the idea of story problems was never foreign to me, was never threatening to me. And as I grew up, I just liked story problems. And of course, maths is basically story problems. Proofs are basically story problems. I did maths as an undergraduate but it was clear to me, because my younger brother was much, much, much better at maths than I was, that there was no way I was going to be able to be a professional mathematician. So for graduate school, I went to Berkeley, and I went thinking I would do statistics more tractable than, than, than basic maths. Got to Berkeley, and just for fun, took a genetics course from Kurt Stern, the last time he taught before he retired. Oh, wow. Right. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, imagine getting paid to do this. This is story problems made, made relevant and critical for life. Made flesh. Made flesh, exactly. Made flesh in a, in a wide variety of different species, some without even flesh, right? So I transferred from statistics to genetics and have never looked back. And then when you started thinking about genetics as a scientist, mm. what was your first problem that you addressed then once you, you started going into this world of genetics? Right. I was interested from the beginning in, in the idea of variation and evolution and how one could understand evolution on the basis of the, the, the basic ways that species change. So we have mutation selection, migration, and drift. And those are the four evolutionary processes by which species change. And I thought, how can we understand from the, from the variation that we see in a species 
that, those processes. And this was in the mid-60s. So the idea of doing protein electrophoresis was just getting off the ground. We weren't yet working with DNA. And I at first thought I might be able to get a grip on that by working with bacterial species, by working on problems in bacterial evolution. Um, it didn't work, both because I didn't have good enough hands. I had, of course, come out of math. I had no background in experimental work at all. And because the, uh, the, the electrophoretic methods of the time were not sufficiently precise to be able to see small small degrees of electrophoretic mobility difference. They, they, they were just coming along. And I wasn't nearly good enough technologically to make those advances myself. So the really tiny differences right. you might want to see, you just couldn't resolve them. I, I, you could resolve them, but they would resolve differently in different experiments day by day. And it was it was largely because we were doing electrophoresis, it sounds ridiculous in retrospect, but we were doing electrophoresis either in tiny tubes or on not quite standardized gels so that the the resolution was good, but it was not exactly reproducible. So bacteria were a, a bit of a bust. And then where did you turn your attention in search of some answers to, to how these evolutionary processes okay. might work? Well, this was Berkeley in the 60s, so there was a lot happening. <laughs> <I'll bet. laughs> right. And so I, I got very discouraged with it. And on the one hand, I got personally discouraged. On the other hand, the, the, the gentleman I was working for, Dr. Stanier, Roger Stanier, um, moved to France in 68. He got very discouraged with working at Berkeley. And, and, and at about that same time, um, Ralph Nader came to California to work on what became the California Project. Who owns the land of California and what are they doing with it? And hired me as the biologist on that project. So I, for, oh, for quite a while, for a number of months, wasn't a student. I worked for Ralph and got very involved in issues like you know, farm worker safety, um, the completely different issue of, of forest practices. So it wasn't in a lab, wasn't in school. Then uh, Ralph Nader said at the end of that project, he said, well, why don't you come back to Washington, D.C.? I'm going to set up what became PERG and work there. We want to do the same thing with Congress that we've done about California. What's what's happening in U.S. Congress? Who owns Congress? <laughs> and I was going to do it. And I talked to my informal advisor, Alan Wilson. He wasn't my official advisor. And Alan said something really incredibly helpful. He said, it would be much wiser to finish your Ph.D. And I said, but none of my experiments work. He said, if people whose experiments didn't work stopped doing science, no one would be left doing science. Oh, yeah. yeah right? <laughs> right? And he said, perhaps we can figure out a way to design a project for you that will take advantage of the fact that you like to write equations and that won't require as much um, technical tour de force as the project did in the Stanier lab. And I said, so tell me why it's so critical that I have a PhD. And he said, well, if you, if you go now to Washington, D.C., and, and you and you work on the project. It's, there's no question it's righteous work. It's, it's a great project. But if you, if you do this with a bachelor's degree, you'll never control the agenda. And if you want to control the agenda in whatever it is you do, you need to have an advanced degree in that area. And it was incredibly good advice. It, was just, it, just, it just made me feel that I wasn't the only one who was having trouble and that it's really important to have an advanced degree. It was completely outside of my family's history. Indeed, it was outside of Alan Wilson's family's history. But 
he understood exactly the issues. And as Mary Claire went on to tell me, that project led to her discovery that humans and chimps share almost exactly the same genes, but have crucial differences in the control switches that turn them on and off at the right time and in the right place to make either a chimp or a human body. From there, she went on to discover the first breast cancer gene, BRCA1, eventually turning her genetic skills to identifying missing, kidnapped and murdered people all over the world. If you haven't heard our full interview in episode 9, it's well worth going back for a listen. The year is 1872. A young American doctor, George Huntington, has just started his career following in the footsteps of his father and grandfather, who were general practitioners in the prosperous Hamptons area of New York. Graduating from Columbia University the year before, at the tender age of 21, George is keen to make an impression on the medical world. Building on a series of intriguing cases first gathered by Pa and Grandpa Huntington, all ancestors of one Geoffrey Francis, who emigrated from England in 1634, George realises that a number of his patients all have the same terrible and progressive disease, and that it runs in families. He refers to this condition as chorea, from an ancient Greek word referring to quick dance-like movements of the hands and feet. The reason becomes obvious in this excerpt from his essay published in the Philadelphia Medical and Surgical Reporter, describing the disease in detail. The name chorea is given to the disease on account of the dancing propensities of those who are affected by it, and it is a very appropriate designation. Its most marked and characteristic feature is a clonic spasm affecting the voluntary muscles. The disease commonly begins by slight twitchings in the muscles of the face, which gradually increase in violence and variety. The eyelids are kept winking, the brows are corrugated and then elevated, the nose is screwed first to the one side and then to the other, and the mouth is drawn in various directions, giving the patient the most ludicrous appearance imaginable. The upper extremities may be the first affected or both simultaneously. As the disease progresses, the mind becomes more or less impaired, in many amounting to insanity, while in others, mind and body gradually fail until death relieves them of their suffering. When either or both the parents have shown manifestations of the disease, one or more of the offsprings invariably suffers from the condition. It never skips a generation to again manifest itself in another. What quickly became known as Huntington's career, and later Huntington's disease, was actually well known for centuries, referred to as magrams by New Englanders since the 1600s, and familiar since the Middle Ages. The first definitive medical description actually comes in 1842, 30 years before George Huntington's paper, in a letter from a Dr Charles Oscar Waters, which notes the key symptoms of the disease and its hereditary nature. In 1846, Charles Gorman had noticed that cases tended to cluster in isolated populations, and by 1860, Norwegian physician Johan Christian Lund had also noted an unusually high prevalence of the condition in people living in the remote area of Setesdalen. But, as is so often the case, it's the guy with the best PR who gets the glory. By the early 20th century, geneticist William Bateson, who rediscovered Mendel's laws on inheritance, had used genealogies from affected families to figure out that Huntington's follows a pattern of autosomal dominant inheritance. 
This means that getting just one faulty copy of the gene from either parent is enough to cause the condition, although it would take another 80 years for researchers to track down the actual gene responsible. But while scientists got on with figuring out the molecular nuts and bolts underpinning Huntington's disease, society got on with being absolutely terrible to families affected by it. Back in colonial New England, people with Huntington's were treated as witches and publicly burned to death. Jumping on the hot new trend for eugenics at the turn of the 20th century, US researchers began tracing detailed family records from affected families and calling for them to be forcibly sterilised so as to avoid passing the condition onwards. In 1916, American geneticist Charles B. Davenport, director of the Biological Laboratory at Cold Spring Harbor in New York and founder of the Eugenics Record Office, published a paper based on family trees in New York and New England, drawn up by physician Elizabeth B. Muncy. In it, he argued that a vast number of cases had stemmed from just a handful of initial progenitors who'd come as colonists to the U.S., And therefore, this was justification for immigration restrictions, surveillance of families and compulsory sterilisation. Another absolutely terrible person in this tale is Connecticut psychiatrist Percy Vesey, who in 1932 traced one of his own Huntington's patients back to her 17th century colonial forebears, three married couples from the English village of Bures in Suffolk, who he saw as the likely seeds of all the US cases of Huntington's disease. As evidence, he cited witchcraft accusations against one woman and her relatives, along with misconduct by the men, and argued for rigid sterilisation of affected families. We can't be smug about our own record here in the UK either. In 1933, The Lancet printed an extract from Vesey's paper, boasting that We Britons may congratulate ourselves on their loss, for there can be no doubt that these men and their progeny were undesirable characters and would nowadays be classified as belonging to the social problem group. And in 1934, British neurologist Macdonald Critchley shamefully added to the stigma by claiming that all members of affected families were liable to bear the marks of a grossly psychopathic taint and the story of feeble-mindedness, insanity, suicide, criminality, alcoholism and drug addiction becomes unfolded over and over again. In fact, Vessie's tale of enchanted ancestors turned out to be misleading. In a fascinating feature published in The Lancet much later on, writer Alice Wexler, whose own family is affected by Huntington's disease, points out that Vesey had confused Eleanor Knapp, the immigrant ancestor of Huntington's families in Connecticut, who was never accused as a witch, with goodwife Knapp, an unrelated woman who was executed as a witch. We've come a long way since the hashtag problematic attitudes of the 1930s, at least one might hope, but the scientific story of Huntington's disease has made similar leaps in understanding. In 1983, researchers tracked down the location of the responsible gene fault to human chromosome 4, and by 1993, the actual gene, known as Huntington, had been identified and sequenced. It quickly became obvious that in people with the disease-causing version of the gene, a short section of DNA, just three letters long, was repeated over and over, far more times than in the healthy version. 
When the gene is decoded within brain cells to make Huntington protein, this so-called triplet repeat, the DNA letters C, A and G, encodes an extra-long run of glutamine amino acids. That's one of the building blocks of proteins. We also know how the triplet repetition happens. It turns out that the molecular machines responsible for copying DNA when cells divide struggle to accurately copy highly repetitive stretches of DNA. Sometimes they lose their place and slip or stutter, sticking in or removing a few extra repeats here and there. It's a bit like trying to read the same word repeated many times over and over in a book. You probably lose your place and forget exactly how many you've read. Intriguingly, the number of repeats is directly linked to the chances of developing the disease. Fewer than 35 CAG repeats and you won't get it. Between 36 and 39, you might be lucky or you might not. But more than 40 repeats leads to the onset of Huntington's around the age of 40. And around 8% of cases occur in people under 20, usually linked to having 60 or more repeats. But despite finding the Huntington gene and identifying the triplet expansion, researchers have little clue about what Huntington actually does in normal cells in the brain and in the rest of the body, let alone how an extra bunch of glutamines in the protein might cause the disease. If indeed, it's the protein that's causing the problem. Maybe all those extra glutamines make the protein very sticky, so it gums up the inner workings of brain cells. Perhaps the defective Huntington protein dilutes out important functions that are normally carried out by the healthy version. There's also evidence to suggest that a strange little shortened form of Huntington might be the rogue agent at work. A further nine hereditary neurological diseases have since been found that are due to expansions of those three little letters, C-A-G, all in unrelated genes. And in all cases, it's still not entirely clear why the increased array of repeats causes the condition. But although knowing about the genetic fault responsible for Huntington's disease means that members of affected families can opt for genetic testing if they wish, as well as techniques like prenatal testing and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis if they want to start a family. What they really, really want is an effective treatment for people living with the condition right now. There is some hope in the form of an exciting gene therapy technique being pioneered by Professor Sarah Tabrizi at UCL and her international team of collaborators. She's been running small clinical trials of antisense oligonucleotides, short genetic messages that cancel out the repetitive Huntington's gene so that the faulty protein doesn't get made. People got very excited by her early results, announced in December 2017. Yay! which showed that the highest doses of the treatment could lead to a 40% reduction in the amount of faulty Huntington present in the fluid around the patient's brains. But that is just the start of it. Tabrizi's trial was only designed to test delivery and safety of the treatment, and she still needs to prove that it actually makes a difference to patients' symptoms and outcomes in the short or longer term. Other researchers are investigating whether new gene editing techniques like CRISPR could be used to snip out the extra repeats. Getting gene therapy and CRISPR tools into enough nerve cells in the brain to make a difference is a big challenge, but it seems to be the best approach on the table right now. Dedicated researchers, charities and family organisations are pulling together to write a new ending for the story of Huntington's disease. 
final choice is from our very first episode, covering the Royal Institution's 2018 Christmas Lectures, presented by Alice Roberts and Aoife McLeisett, and sponsored by the Genetic Society. Of course, it wouldn't be the Christmas Lectures without loads of amazing live demonstrations, courtesy of professional pyromaniac Fran Scott and the RI Demo team, who spent months coming up with amazing ways to demonstrate the science that Aoife and Alice talked about in their lectures. So I just had to ask Fran a question that I've always struggled with when it comes to dreaming up biology demos. Alice's lectures are thinking about, you know, what am I? Where do I come from? And it all boils down to genetics, organisms, bodies, bones. How do you go about thinking of demos for that? Because I always struggle to come up with genetics (laughs) demonstrations because DNA is really tiny. So what are some of the things that you're doing? Um, So, yeah, it's been a difficult one. One, because this isn't my area of expertise, genetics. And so coming up with things that are not only part of the explanation, but are also visually impressive has been a little bit of a challenge. And to be fair, both Alice and Aoife have led the way with ideas. There's a fair bit that is analogous, but also we've just decided to think outside the box a bit. And so let's say when we're introducing a cell, yes, of course, you could just do that with slides and pictures, but that's not what we're about. So when we introduce a cell, we imagine a cell that's on the scale of the lecture theatre. And so then we've got a big balloon that comes down and it's the nucleus and we've got balloon modelled organelles that are going to be passed around the audience. And then we pop the balloon in the centre and DNA floats down. And so it's just thinking about small things that can actually make something that could just be explained verbally, but actually making it visual and so you can picture what it is that they're talking about. And have you got a couple of demos that are really your favourite or even one that you just, <laughs> oh, I love this, I love this? There's one at the moment that I'm trying to get into the lecture, but at the moment um, the presenters aren't liking it, so we'll see. But I, I like it, but I'm a pyrotechnician, so of course I would. Um, it's a good bit of fire. Um, I was going to ask, are you going to get some fire in? Because I know it's your thing, setting things on fire. It's <laughs> something that I need to practice tonight, actually, which is because um, uh, when fire was introduced, um, in terms of it meant we could cook our food, which meant we could get the digestion was easier, which meant we could like get more calories easier, basically the net calories. And so obviously I'm going to have fun with that. So we've got a handheld pyrotechnic fire launcher, I suppose it's called. And so we fire that into a tray, which spells fire, and then each of those catch fire. Um, That's the plan. (laughs) Um, But then also we've got um, this beautiful mobile, which we've spent all of yesterday actually building. Um, And it's it's halfway there. And it's a mobile, like a child's mobile, um, Tree of Life. Oh, wow. Yeah. I saw some of this in the theatre earlier with these beautiful origami animals. What's it got on it? Um, Oh, gosh. So we've got a horse, human, bat, tiktaalik, puffer fish, which is quite entertaining, a crab. So they just all dangle down at their different um, sections. And so, yeah, for me... As like, a, I suppose, I'm, well, I'm a neuroscientist by training, but physics really gets me going and engineering. And so this centre of gravity that we've had to work out for each of the individual animals, and then we're going to put lights on it as well, so we've got to balance it. And each section has got to be balanced individually. And then we've got to come up with a concertina effect to actually make it go up in the theatre and up and beyond where the projector comes in. So from an engineering point of view, and I suppose from an artistic point of view, it's something that's beautiful but has taken so much physics to actually make work. I think that might be my favourite at the moment. 
Brad Scott, rounding off our selection of some of our favourite bits from the year so far. Why not tweet us at geneticsunzip and let us know your best bits? Next time, we'll be back with new episodes packed with stories from the world of genes, genomes and DNA. You can explore our whole back catalogue, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else at geneticsunzip.com. And please, as always, do take a moment to rate and review Genetics Unzipped on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference to boost our rankings and help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mail. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.